So the mum in question that I'm wanting to talk about is Rebecca, daughter-in-law of Abraham and Sarah, wife of their son Isaac, and mother to twins Jacob and Esau. A little bit of background. We first hear about Rebecca in Genesis 24 when Abraham sends his servant to go back to Abraham's relatives in Mesopotamia to go and find a wife for Isaac. And he goes out to find her and we're told amazing things about her. She's a babe, she's young, she's in her prime, she probably does crossfit. The girl runs a tonne and a half of water back and forth to these ten thirsty camels. She's probably Miss Middle East for two years running, top shelf merch. (laughs) And we're not only told that, but she was a confident woman of action. Abraham's servant gave her the option to stay for 10 days and wait with her family and say goodbye and, you know, just get used to the idea. But she didn't take that. She went that very same, he slept over that night, stayed that very next day. She went, she said, I will go. If it was me, I would have wanted to take that whole 10 days, pray fast, Facebook stalk, check out that he, I wasn't being catfished. But no, off she went, she was certain, and they got married pretty much straight away. Now, a lesser known fact about this love story is that it took them nearly 20 years to conceive. It wasn't just boom, boom, bam, there are the twins. In Genesis 25, 20, it tells us that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebecca, and in verse 26, that he was 60 when she gave birth. So we pick up the story, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis 25, verse 21. Where it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. And the Lord answered him and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. But the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is so, why am I in this condition? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So God's given them a prophecy, but of a spoiler alert, you're having twins. It's going to be boys, and I'm choosing to raise up the younger over the older. So picking up in verse 24, when her days leading to the delivery were at an end, behold, surprise, surprise, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came out red, all over here like a garment. Nice. And they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. To grasp the heel is actually a Hebrew idiom, which means to supplant or to wrongfully take the place of. Sam mentioned last week when he was preaching about Joseph, that God frequently overlooked the firstborn, that he was less concerned with social norms and entitlements, and that he saw not as man sees on the outside, but into the heart, that he was looking for the heart of a person to fulfil his purposes. Now, in this situation, I don't think that God intended Jacob to fulfill that prophecy in dishonorable ways. In James 1.13, it says, For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. I don't think he meant for Jacob to be deceitful in fulfilling that prophecy. If God has a calling for us and for our children, he'll make a way and he'll make an honourable way. We won't have to sneak around trying to get it. Rebecca and Isaac had received a very countercultural and life-changing word from the Lord that their family unit would be completely disrupted. This was a pretty big thing that they had been 
told that their second born would take the place of their first. And because culturally we don't really have the same emphasis or entitlements as firstborn, it is a bit tricky to um, give an example of what that might look like for us. But if you could be told ahead of time that you were having two kids and one of them would be wildly successful at everything they did, sports, school, money, ministry, health, marriage, the whole thing, just everything they tried, they were a superstar. And then that the other one would struggle and fail at every turn. Addiction and debt and sick all of the time and just constantly running from God. That would be a next to impossible task to know how to work that out and how to parent through that. And that was where Isaac and Rebecca found themselves. Rebecca's default coping mechanism in that was manipulation and Isaac's default was denial. Neither of them that we know of sought the Lord for divine strategy or asked him, how do you want me to work this out, Father? How is this supposed to look? I wonder how differently the situation might have looked had they actually done that. My default as a parent is probably more in line with Rebecca's. Koe, my son, told me a few weeks ago that he didn't think God was real, that God was lying to us, and that the snake in the garden was really telling us the truth. (laughs) My knee-jerk reaction was to want to bring the threats. I was like, eternal damnation is coming if you don't change your mind. I didn't do that, but I was very tempted. And instead... I just asked, Lord, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? I thought I'd have a few more years up my sleeve before I would be confronted with that as a situation. But God gave me these three awesome strategies. First was to read to him at night just from his child's Bible book and not from the other books in his wardrobe. Not that any of there's anything wrong with that, but just to read to him from that. And when he asks me questions as we're reading, which happens every other sentence, <laughs> to stop And take time to answer those questions and just foster that in him, which is so hard for me. And the second one was to verbalise. When I was thinking about God, praying, when I was just noticing something amazing that Jesus had done, a sunset or being able to taste a certain food, to actually say it, to verbalise it when I was in Cohen's presence so that he could almost kind of hear into my head how much I was thinking about God, talking to God and appreciating him. And the third one was to practice seeing where Jesus was in the room, which he, I was quite surprised how much he actually really enjoys doing that. And it hasn't been an instant fix. He's not got his little soapbox out at lunchtime yet, preaching to the kids at school. But I'm definitely seeing his heart soften, which is which is really encouraging. With Rebecca, the end was good. She believed what God had told her. She treasured it in her heart, but her means left a lot to be desired because she didn't seek God's guidance on how he wanted it to be walked out. She took it into her own hands, and in doing that, she dishonored the Lord and the prophecy and her husband and her sons. And that ultimately tore apart her family. When Jacob left, fleeing from Esau, she never saw him again after that. So it had some pretty big consequences. And it's important to say here that God didn't tell Rebecca the prophecy so that he could be like, here you go, here's a plan, off you go, have at it. I'll catch you up in 20 years and, you know, see what you've made of it. You figure out the details. 
I think he wanted to tell her that so that she could partner with him on walking that out. And he told her really early, like before they were even born, gave her loads of heads up so she could have a whole lot of practice runs. Who loves the practice runs? Having kids with goldfish-like memories. I love it. I know that won't last forever, so I'm enjoying it, but... He gives us grace to walk out the learning process. It's not just dumping us in it and then expecting us to figure it out straight away. And how beautiful that in spite of all that Rebecca and Isaac and Issa and Jacob did to meddle and try and figure it all out themselves, that he still accomplished his purpose in in Jacob's life. When the burden of knowing that our best as people and as parents is never going to be enough... It's so comforting to know that God will fill in the gaps and he will accomplish his purposes, even if we muck it up. So my first two-part question is, do we know or have some idea the plans that the Lord has for our kids? And if so, what are we doing to come into alignment with them? Now, if the answer that you have to that is, I'm not really sure, to help make that a resounding yes and to ensure that we're not coasting along through parenthood just in default mode there are a few things that we can do to keep us on track three in fact favorite number firstly is to search out the goals that the Lord has for each of our kids Rebecca sought the Lord in prayer and that was when she received the prophecy it didn't just get dropped into her lap one day so prayer is tops the book of Proverbs is also an amazing place to start just reading through and asking the Lord to highlight that a verse jump out for that kid. For me with Koei, um, it's wisdom. It's to do with wisdom and discernment and understanding um, because, you know, Proverbs tells us that from that, you know, all the other good things flow. And to weave into that scripture what we see uniquely for our children, their strengths and their interests and just who makes them them and just seeking the Lord for more specific from there. But that's a great place to start. And then getting them a named journal as step number two and writing that all down, not just kind of leaving it to bounce around in our heads, but to ask the Lord for strategies and resources and mentors and writing that all down and getting serious about about seeking it out. Isaiah 16, 16 says, Our God is a God who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. If the options seem limited in the natural, if you have a child who is, has walked away from God completely and entirely, and it's just looking impossible that the plans that you feel God has for that child are just, you can't see how that would work. Know that God has a supernatural way to bring that about. We don't need to see the plan to know that it's, that it's good, that he will make a way. So ask him, wait for him to answer, and then do what? he said and write it down and thirdly is just to keep referring back to it keep checking in are we making our decisions from our own reasoning or from that divine revelation that we've had this will motivate us and keep us accountable and realign us if we're starting to get a bit golem like about the whole thing like Rebecca did getting a bit scary with it it'll keep us focused in the way that we pray for our kids and also to help us think big picture not just weeks and months And also, if along the way we get a prophetic word for our kids, we can weigh it against that. And if an opportunity comes up for our kids, we can use that 
if it's, if it's hard to know, should we commit to that, should we not commit to that? When we have a, a firm understanding of who we believe God is calling our kids to be, we can use that as, as a decision filter. Is walking in that opportunity going to take them closer or further away from that person that God is calling them to be? And then as they get older and make the decisions for themselves, we can give them that journal and say, this is what God has put on my heart for you, what I've been praying into. This is a great way that you can help to make your decisions going forward, you know, if it's coming into alignment with that or not. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Growing up, I saw my mum walk this concept out really beautifully. She had a deep, passionate awareness of God's desire to see me and my sisters marry Christian, godly men. I remember being very young and her sitting at the end of my bed, praying for us before bed, praying for our future husbands, for his parents, for his teachers, for you know, them to make wise decisions for their relationship with God. She just had this beautiful heart to pray into this man that we didn't know who it was, didn't know when we would meet them. And she really walked that out from an alignment with the father's heart, not like, not like Rebecca did. And she didn't wait until we were of dating age to do that. She, in, I remember in my teenage years, she would fast on a Monday afternoon. Every single Monday, I would see her not eating. She was fasting for our future husbands. She upped the game and went next level with it when the time was, well, what she thought the time was approaching was still another decade at that stage. But she... Um, she took it seriously and she sewed into that decades before it was actually going to become a reality. And look at the results of that. I got the best one. It's worth doing. It's worth doing. As mums and dads and aunts and uncles and grandparents and step-parents and adoptive parents, our heart for our kids is the same, that they would make the best choices and that they would be blessed and walk in the favour of the Lord. And that is our deepest heartache for our kids and that was where Rebecca was. That, was. that was her motivation, where this was all coming from. But her ache got in the way and she lost sight of God's sovereignty and his bigger story and tried to control the outcome. So we're just such a great reminder for us not to do that, to just remember when it all looks a bit hopeless that God's got it under control. He's got a plan just to pray into that. Okay, so we pick up the story again in Genesis 25, 29. When Jacob had cooked a stew one day, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a mouthful of that red stuff there, for I am exhausted. Therefore, he was called Edom by name. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore an oath to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and got up and went on his way. So Esau despised his birthright. What can we glean from that? Firstly, Esau is a bit of a drama queen. I'm about to die. <laughs> like he's, he's a bit of an over-exaggerator, I think. And secondly, who would trade something that they valued for a bowl of lentil stew? Not even meat, just lentils and sauce. Straight up traded it in. Anyone? Sure, if you've got something valuable, Janine would be happy to whip you up a nice bowl of some lentils. 
it's just, yeah, it just seems bizarre to us. But there are two potential explanations for why Esau would trade something of huge value for something of next to no value. And the first was that he was vulnerable. A great acronym to remember, which I've kind of remixed off Sam's, is HEAT. When we're hungry, emotional, angry, or tired, or a combo, we're especially vulnerable to compromise and to make a decision that we'll regret in the heat of the moment. Hey, <laughs> little dad joke on Mother's Day. The particularly deadly combo for me is fangry, tired, hungry, angry. Oh, all sorts of fruit of the spirit will be traded up for a dirty little ham sandwich, I tell you what. When I'm tired and in need of some escapism, I will trade my valuable hours of sleep for the newest episode of Line of Duty. Love that show. And then that in turn makes it hard for me to get up in the morning and I put myself into more a place of, of temptation, being vulnerable. I don't think that it was a coincidence that Jacob just so happened to be cooking on that day. I think he had been studying Esau, watching him go in and out, knowing when he went out to hunt, knowing when he'd be tired and exhausted so that he could take advantage of it. I think he had no meat left because he'd been cooking up so many stews that week that all he had left was lentils. Probably couldn't believe his little luck when it actually worked with the lentils. But he was watching him, and we have an enemy that is doing the same, watching us, studying us, knowing when we're vulnerable, prowling around like a lion, waiting to devour us. And so we need to know when we're vulnerable, recognise those times, to reflect on them, and already have made ahead of time the decision that we're going to make. Once it gets to this time, I'm turning the TV off. I'm going to bed. When I'm hungry at night, I'm not going to go into the fridge and check out the leftovers from dinner and have dinner 2.0 because then I'm not going to fit my jeans. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. If we've made the decision beforehand, it hugely helps us in times of vulnerability. Joyce Meyer says, always, wisdom always chooses to do now that which it will be satisfied with later on. Wisdom always chooses to do now that which it will be satisfied with later on. Now, the really sad thing about this story is that Esau didn't actually regret that decision. The Bible says he despised his birthright and that actually that was the reason that he traded it for nothing because he didn't place any value on it. The word birthright in Hebrew is makora, which is not quite the same as how we might look at an inheritance in our culture, like being the recipient of a will. There are lots of facets to what makora means, um, but really a, a really, really basic summary, because I'm, yeah, basic summary, um, is that the firstborn typically received a double portion of the inheritance so that they could fulfill their duties as head of the household looking after the well-being of dependent relatives, ensuring the survival of the family estate, and having authority to perform sacrificial services on behalf of the family. So it was sort of like a priestly role. It was more of a, a spiritual inheritance rather than a material entitlement. So if we skip down to chapter seven, 27, sorry, Rebecca overhears Isaac telling Esau to go out and hunt, make him a meal, bring it back in and he would give him the blessing. So I'm not sure if Isaac has forgotten the prophecy or he's just 
choosing not to come into alignment with it, or he's just in denial that he wants his favourite to be the one who inherits everything. But Isaac tells Esau to go and do that. Rebecca overhears it. She tells Jacob, oh, quick, get your, get your Esau kit on, get your goat skins on, make yourself hairy. I've whipped up a nice little bowl of stew. Take it into him. Tell him that you're Esau. Get the blessing for yourself. She goes to a lot of effort to pull this off. So we pick it up in verse 30. Now it came about, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from his presence of his father, Isaac, that his brother Esau came in from his hunting. Then he also made a delicious meal and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who then was he who hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate from it, all of it, before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me as well, my father. Now, I always thought that the birthright and the blessing were kind of one and the same thing that the Bible just happened to use a different word for, which is never the case. But um, that Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob, and then years went by, and he'd kind of secretly hoped Jacob might have forgotten, and that he could just sneak in there and just go and claim all the goods anyway. But Esau actually differentiates. He says, he has betrayed me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Esau states that they're two separate things. And the word that they use for birthright, as we talked about, baraka, is different. The word that they use for blessing, sorry, is bakora, and the word for blessing is baraka. Baraka wasn't necessarily an exchanging of goods where you got some physical stuff in your hand. It was more a calling out and a releasing of favour and blessing over your life. In chapter 26, 12, it says, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. This was the outworking of the baraka that he had received from his father Abraham, his blessing that he had got. And this was what Esau was so devastated that he lost. Now, we don't read about Esau having any reaction at all when he sold his birthright, but when he lost his blessing, he was so gutted. He was more concerned with material things and wealth and his comfort going forward than he was the spiritual things and, you know, seeking the face of God like Jacob was. And so it's hard to know why there was such a difference between the two of them. Why did one so hunger for getting the whole lot, seeking God, getting his blessing as well as the material blessing? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and why the other was just after the, the money, essentially. But we can see an aspect of the answer to that potentially could lie in how they were parented. Genesis 25, 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Way to a man's heart, through his stomach. But Rebecca loves Jacob. So favourites, again, see that all throughout the Old Testament. So it doesn't say this in the text, but it doesn't seem too much of a stretch that if we've got 
mum and Jacob, Esau and Isaac, that they probably had more of a, a motherly influence for Jacob, fatherly influence for Esau. Now, I'm not defending Jacob's actions and how he went about obtaining Esau's birthright, but it's admirable that he saw value in it. He put it in a place of honour. He went after it with everything that he had. And that's the kind of heart attitude that God loves, one hungry for him to seek his heart and for spiritual gain. Malachi 1, 2 to 3 says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have despised. Even though Jacob was so blinded by his ambition for spiritual blessing, God was so turned by that heart, so hungry for him, his power and his presence. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 9 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This scripture tells us how to create in our children a heart like Jacob. It tells us our part in in that, what that looks like for us, to talk to them about God all of the time, teaching them diligently in the car, eating meals, bedtime, waking time, getting dressed time, all of the time, even the artwork that you hang up in your house and in their rooms pointing to God, that it reminds them of the importance and value of spiritual things. Now, we aren't told specifically how Rebecca fostered that deep reverence for God in Jacob. But you can bet that she told him all about the prophecy that God told me this, that this is what the birthright means and this is why it's valuable and this is why you want it and you've got to go and get it. And she probably told him that story over and over and over again like a bedtime story. And we see from Esau's reaction that he didn't have any emphasis like that on the birthright. Otherwise, you can you can guarantee his reaction would have been quite different. So my second question is, what are we doing to stir up a deep, passionate, reverential hunger for God in the lives of our kids? Are we living, breathing examples? So in love with Jesus that we can't shut up about him, talking about him all of the time, thanking him? Or are we leaving that bit up to Charlotte and Sunday school? and veggie tales. The spiritual formation of our kids is happening whether we participate in it or not. If we go into cruise control and into our default mode, they will be formed by their friends and their teachers and what they see on TV and social media. And none of those things necessarily are wrong, but we can almost know for certain that they won't be in alignment with the word of God. They will learn to hit if they're hit back, and be kind if someone's kind to them. They won't learn to be kind on purpose to a kid who's been mean to them on purpose. Are we stirring up in them an insatiable appetite for relationship with God? If they don't know what they're entitled to as children of God, how can they ever place any value on it? Now, because I know this type of challenge is like walking a tightrope between faith and works, I just want to add in here that even if we could 
do everything right as parents, which we can't, but even if we could, it won't guarantee that our kids will make all the right choices. The end result is out of our control and that they will need to encounter God independently, just like Jacob did. The Lord shall be my God. The Jesus Calling devotional for today said it so beautifully. This is God speaking to us. My infinite creativity can weave both good choices and bad into a lovely design. Your failures can be a source of blessing, humbling you and giving you empathy for other people in their weaknesses. Best of all, failure highlights your dependence on me. Grace upon grace upon grace. All in his grace, not in our own strength. Parenting is not a perfect performance. It's a partnership with God. Okay, so we move back into chapter 26 before, before Jacob stole the blessing. The twins are grown and the family's residing in Gerar. We're told in verse 7, When the men of the place asked Isaac about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebecca, since she is beautiful. Who does that sound like? Abraham. Little rat bags, taking the dirty little tricks of old daddy Abraham. If we plot this out, Abram said a half-truth. Sarai, it was before she got had her name changed, she was technically his sister. His They had the same dad, but different mum. So you could kind of wrangle it that it was a half-truth. But he told King Abimelech, she's my sister, not my wife, which is the more important thing. His son, Isaac, told a full lie to the same king, but his son, Jacob, not only lied and dabbled in a little bit of identity fraud, he lied to his dad's face now. Not just a random king, doesn't matter who cares, he's an enemy of ours anyway, to his dad. Then Jacob's sons lied to him about Joseph's death for decades. There's a pattern, and it's perpetuating, and it's getting worse every time. Now, this loose relationship with honesty didn't just come from Jacob's side. We see when he runs away from Esau and goes to be with old Uncle Laban, Rebecca's brother, Laban tricks him into marrying the wrong girl. He's a dirty little con artist too. So it's coming from both sides. You almost feel a little bit bad for Jacob, like, gosh, wasn't given half a chance. But the cycle of brokenness was passed down through the family on both sides, amplified with each generation, and the consequences just got messier and messier every time. We read about this in Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6, when the Lord is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who despise me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, when we look at this through the lens of the New Testament, we know that God is not a spiteful God just waiting to doll out the punishment. Oh, because you mucked up, so look out, great grandies, because here I come. This is not the loving God that we know. It's He's not trying to be cruel. He's trying to warn us that when we break his law, like Abraham did, that it sets up a precedent within our family. It models to our children, this is acceptable behaviour. This is fine. Dirty little lie. As long as it, you know, the ends are okay. It's fine. It's fine. And of course, those kids then run with it, and then their kids run with it, and their kids run with it. So it's not hard to see how sin back here 
actually has consequences three and four generations down. Not because God wants to see them suffer, but because we are shaped by where we are from. If we come from a family who overeat, we'll probably struggle with portion control. If our family values the environment, we'll probably recycle. It's not a guarantee, but our family of origin, which is not just our immediate mum and dad and brothers and sisters, but the three generations, four generations that came before them, they are shaping who we are. But the way better news is when God says that he will show love and kindness to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. The cycle of blessing is so much more powerful than the cycle of the curse. It's hugely disproportionate. The active kindness of God grows exponentially to a thousand generations. Sam spoke about Joseph, again coming back to that. Joseph came from this family of origin. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then came Joseph. With all the baggage and all this dysfunction and deceit and lies and loose relationship with honesty, this was what Joseph's family of origin was. But somewhere in the pit, somewhere in the prison, Joseph decided to take a stand and break off the curse of his family of origin. He brought great healing not just to his own family to come after him, but to his brothers and to his father because he trusted God this time to work out the divine reversal. He didn't try and make it all happen his own way. He let God, and in letting God, he turned the evil that the brothers had intended Joseph into good and into blessing. We have a whole lot of baggage from the generations that have come before us but we can be Joseph in our family lines and break off the curse from generations that have come before us. And isn't it so worth dealing with our stuff so that we can leave our kids a legacy and their kids and so on and so forth? We need to keep a multi-generational view and keep in mind the impact that our actions will have on them. So my third and final question is, what do we need to recognise from our family of origin that is bringing suffering to us and the lives of our kids? What battles do we need to fight so they don't have to, so that they can walk in the blessing? John Mark Comer says, honouring your parents doesn't mean turning a blind eye to their mistakes or their brokenness. The way to honour them is to identify all that was good from your family line and then cut out anything you think is bad or out of line with the way of Jesus. Hopefully add in more good, then take the story forward and move that family legacy in the right direction. I very proudly come from a strong line of born-again, passionate believers. I know for sure that on both sides, three generations back at least uh, strong were strong Christians. And my family of origin showed me the value of tithing, the value of taking Sabbath seriously, and the value of a strong devotional life every single day. Just to name a few, I don't want to get too braggy. They learnt and consistently modelled these disciplines to me so that they would be my default, so that I could start from a place of strength and not have to spend years trying to figure this out for myself. I am walking in the blessing and the favour of their faithfulness. But I also learnt how to rush and hurry. 
how to eat way too fast at a smorgasbord so I could fit it all in before I got full. And how to find my worth in what I do instead of who I am. These are still battles that I'm fighting and I might have to fight the rest of my life. But my hope is that in my dedication to model something different to my kids, that they would walk and break through. That they would live in greater freedom and revelation than I have been able to and that in such they would bless their kids and their kids and their kids after them. If that incentive isn't enough to keep us going, I don't know what is. So this Mother's Day, let's make a stand together to look into our hearts with humility and honesty and let God show us some things that he wants to bring about some change in and say to him, Lord, not my will, not my way of trying to work this out, but yours. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's decide to intentionally seek out his plans the Lord has for our kids to stir in those children a deep hunger to seek the face of the Lord, not just the hand of the Lord, and to model for them what that looks like in walking in wholeness. And what an incredible exponential blessing that will bring. I just want to give an opportunity to any mums this morning who would like some prayer to come up. If you're hungering for promises for your kids and you just don't feel like you're getting anywhere with that, come up and let's pray for that. If there are mother or father wounds that you're wanting to see forgiveness and healing in, come up and we would love to pray for you. If there are wayward children... Let's stand together and declare that they are kingdom children. The enemy does not have power over them. And if there's infertility and loss and grief in this area, what better day to pray for a breaking off of that and God's healing than right now, right today. So if every head could be bowed and every eye could be closed, if you would like prayer, please come up. None of these things come with a, a tablet to magically fix them, but we have better than that. We can come into the throne room of God and ask him what he has to say about it so that he can speak his life and light into the situation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your provision and your sovereignty. Thank you that your love conquers all and that your plans will be accomplished and established whether we muck things up and get in the way of them or not. Father, we just thank you so much that you love our kids so much more than we ever will be able to, but that you've entrusted their care and their stewardship to us. Thank you that your grace never fails, it never runs out, and it never gives up on us. I bless every mother here this morning, every father, with a triple portion of wisdom, discernment, strength, patience, and grace. May you amplify our awareness of your love so that we can mirror it back to our kids. Equip each of us, Lord, with divine strategy to parent our kids in alignment with your will. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.